0: What's going on family? My guest on this episode today is the current Brooklyn Borough President and NYC mayoral candidate, Eric Adams. Eric and I have been friends for about a year now. He's one of those people that just seems born for politics. He appears to be genuinely interested and inquisitive in all of his conversations, even if you know it's his 400th conversation of the day. He seems to take big problems personally. You can hear him in this episode start to get pissed off anytime he feels like something's gone wrong and should have been handled differently. And he has this big laugh and this deep New York City accent that you can hear from down the block. I wanted to connect with Eric for a few reasons. I'm genuinely curious as to what it's like to be in a leadership position at the epicenter of a pandemic. It's a historically unique position that he's sitting in right now. I wanted to know if he had been the mayor's seat, what he would have done differently. A lot of us in New York are pissed off at the situation with the lack of testing, the lack of PPE, our high death toll, what went wrong? Why are we the epicenter? We've also seen how, like in so many other problems, black and brown people have been disproportionately affected. So I was wondering what long-term systemic reforms need to be prioritized immediately in a COVID-19 world to protect black and brown communities from continuing to be disproportionately harmed. I hope this episode finds you and your loved ones safe and healthy, and I hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. I'll just jump right into it, then talking about staying focused. I mean, you are in a rare position historically, right? You are one of the leaders at the epicenter of a pandemic. What does that look like? What are your duties right now as the Brooklyn Borough President? And what are the biggest challenges in this moment? And this is very interesting because uh, I
1: believe there are two types of leaders or elected officials. One serves in a capacity during uh, normal times when you have to balance budgets and you have to make sure the trains run on time and that you have enough Xerox copy paper. And then there's a time when you need a leader that can emerge in crisis and think under fire and make these fast decisions and really uh, move around in real time, particularly when you're dealing with an enemy like coronavirus. Number one, you can't see it. Number two, it moves so swiftly that you have to adjust with its movement and you have to really think on its feet. And as the Bible said, Esther said, God made me for times just like this. I'm made for times like this. I'm coming through my time as a law enforcement officer, coming through as the former computer programmer, living through 9 11. Uh, making decisions as a precinct squad commander, and eventually executive officer of a precinct. These real-time calls, not only using my technical brain to understand how we need to do this in real time, but the ability to deal with crises and respond with a very level head as I look at this.
0: What's an example of things that have changed in real time? What's evolved that you had to rapidly change how you were responding to this?
1: Number one, this fight is on two fronts. This fight is not a fight on just the hospitals. Too many people have focused the attention on, uh, let's go after those folks who are sick and make sure those who particularly need ventilators that we get them to them. That is the wrong mindset and that is really the wrong approach that the city has had and the state has had, if not even a country. Really, this is a two front battle. One is in a hospital. The second is to prevent the feeder of the hospital crises by making sure people don't actually catch coronavirus in the first place. We have not focused on that. And what we have done in our office is we say, listen, let's get on the ground and grab those vulnerable populations so that we make sure they don't get coronavirus in the first place. So let's go to NYCHA and give them masks and give them information and tips and so we had to shift as we saw the numbers increase in predominantly black and brown communities not only in new york but across the countries we were already shifting by the time the country caught up to this crisis we also shifted long before the cdc said that everyone should be wearing a face covering you go back two three weeks ago my team was already on the ground giving face coverings to the essential employees throughout the city. So we were making those real-time decisions long before the city and state and the federal government understood that these were the real issues that were actually feeding the crisis.
0: Was that a source of frustration for you? You know, I know you running for mayor in 2021, so you can kind of expand your ability to influence what's happening in the city. Were you looking upstream at, and hoping, you know, maybe Cuomo or de Blasio would have made those orders before you had to intercede? Frustration is putting it lightly. Yeah.
1: The level of anger I had watching before my eyes, how we were leading the lamb to slaughter. And let me break that down for you. We did three things that in retrospect and review, people are going to look at with astonishment. First thing we did, is we divided the city up into the terminologies of essential employees and non-essential employees. We stated that essential employees must go out and continue to work. Non-essential employees were able to stay home and remotely do their job. So if you did a proper analysis, essential and non-essential, if we like it or not, that's an ethnic description. The overwhelming mm. number of people that could do their job from their laptops are white in many cases affluent. you have a few african-americans and caribbeans and hispanics that can do it from a laptop but over 70 percent of the essential employees are black and brown they're the transit operators they're the correction officers the 911 operators the school's crossing guards we told them you must go out and keep the city running while the overwhelming number of essential employees were able to stay home Second thing we did that was wrong. We said to them, we're sending you out in harm's way, but we're not going to give you protective equipment in the process. So you're going to jeopardize your own health and the health of your family members, and we're going to tell the non-essential employees to stay home, to social distance, to make sure that you indoors with your family. The essential employees, the store clerks and others, we told them, go out in harm's way without the necessary equipment. And that yeah. is what you see as a feeder.
0: That case of that bus driver in Detroit who went on Facebook and shared his frustration with not having equipment and having a woman cough. And then, you know, we found out a couple of weeks later he passed away. Uh, I'm sure it's just indicative of thousands of stories like that.
1: Yes, yes, so true. You're, you're correct. And that is indicative of the many stories out there. Now, let me give you the most crucial part of this journey that has yet to be really told. People were saying, okay, we can't give the PPEs, which is now known as personal protective equipment, we can't give it to everyone because we didn't have enough. That is a lie. There is no global shortage of PPEs. We and my colleagues have identified a number of distributors who were able to get millions of PPEs to this city. The problem was we had a crisis on the ground, but we had a procurement system that maintained a traditional method of procuring items. Although we told nurses that you must break the rules of how to deal with a patient with an infectious disease and wear a mask for five days, we did not tell the procurement parts of government that you must expedite getting this equipment on the
0: ground. So is procurement not one of the things, when there's a state of emergency declared, my maybe naive thought is that that then concentrates powers in the executive and allows them to expedite normal processes. Is procurement not one of those processes that, as it's structured now, is able to be expedited?
1: Yes, it is. It is totally arbitrated by the executive branch, they could have expedited the distribution of PPEs. Not only didn't they expedite it, in the case where I was able to find individuals from my sister city agreements globally, we were able to get masks and other personal protection equipment at 50% of the cost, we were still paying high dollar for items that we were doing during a normal procurement rate. And that leaves a big question mark on this entire process.
0: Totally. Explain to me a little bit what you're able to do and not do as the Brooklyn Borough President. When you have a need like this, are you working with the mayor first? Do you have a budget you can go outside of him? How does that work? Great question.
1: There are five boroughs in the city of New York. The city of New York is part of the state of New York. But New York City is its own little private entity with its own budget. Our budget is about $94 billion. We're the largest entity with over 8 million people in the city, extremely diverse. Brooklyn is one of the five counties that make up New York City. We're the largest with 2.6 million people. 47% of the people speak a language other than English at home. We control a large capital budget. That is where our strength is. We get about $52 million a year on capital projects that we do within the budget. But our budget comes from the city of New York, and it is through the city of New York where the large procurement parts of the city come from. Now, I was able to leverage my international relationships throughout the last six years. I have a lot of sister city agreements with several cities across the globe, and I was able to leverage those relationships to get supplies here donated. And so we receive uh, thousands of donated masks, thousands of gowns, and we're getting in the supply of ventilators as well because of relationships. But the actual purchasing power comes from the budget of the city of New York that the mayor and the city council has control over.
0: You know, one of the questions I had for you, and I think you've done a great job of laying this out so far, but if you had mayoral power in this moment, what would you have done differently outside of expediting the procurement process and making sure everyone had what they needed, especially the essential workers? What else stuck out to you as things that if you were in that seat, you'd be doing right away?
1: Real-time governance. Number one, we would have had testing in my high-need areas. We had no plan for dealing with, with the information. There was information we knew about coronavirus and there was information we didn't know about coronavirus. But the China information showed us that those with existing conditions were more likely to die, were more likely to have a fatality, more likely to be a real strain on our healthcare system. So if we had that information going into this, we should have focused our concentration on that feeder. We put no real energy on the preventive steps of stopping people from correcting coronavirus, that vulnerable population. We should have had some real conversations that spoke to the various languages in our city. I would not have only had this English language debriefing that the president, the governor, and the mayor did, that they were talking in an echo chamber of only the English speakers. I would have used all of my local medias. We already had an entire network in place because of the census system that was in place, I would have overlaid the coronavirus conversation on top of that census conversation, and we would have reached every corner of this city. Then I would have tested more and often. I would have made sure that we identified how the virus was spreading and where was it spreading so we could have gotten on the ground assistance and resources to the locations.
0: What is, just to interject for a second, what is the holdup on tests? Why aren't we all tested at this point?
1: A combination of things two different philosophies the state and the city not only are we seeing some personality differences between the governor and the mayor we're also Mm -hmm. seeing a philosophical disagreement the governor is doing more tests the mayor and his team they believe we should not be doing tests they believe that we should be only testing people who have advanced conditions so we're not using the testing system to identify Where are the cluster areas so we can get the
0: resources there? What's the philosophy behind testing less, other than if there's a finite amount of tests? Is there a finite amount of tests? And if not, what's the philosophy there?
1: I totally disagree with, and I share that with the Department of Health Commissioner. I totally disagree with the philosophy of not testing. And here was one of the problems that we had. When I spoke with the presidents of my hospitals three weeks ago, they shared with me That at that time, the Department of Health was making a determination of who get tested or not. And they said out of 10 requests they made, only one was approved. And so we were actually under testing and under monitoring in certain communities in the city. And I think it showed that these communities have a greater impact on negative outcomes.
0: And that's due to a lack of tests. When they say, hey, look, we're not going to run nine of these 10 tests. Why are they saying they're not going to run it? That's a good
1: question, and that is part of the data that needs to be released. Um, where did we test? How many tests did we do? What communities did we test? And who made that call? If Mr. Johnson came in and had the same criterias as uh, Ms. Mary had, who made the call to determine we're not giving Mr. Johnson an exam and we're giving it to Miss Mary. And then we have to ask the question, was the 9 out of 10 ratio the same no matter what community you came from? Right. It's a very important questions that we have
0: to ask. You mentioned, and I'm happy you did, that people of color are being disproportionately affected. You've mentioned some of the reasons why in the immediate term in terms of how many of these folks are essential workers you know, and how those percentages break down. There's also these macro, structural, systemic inequalities that are showing up across the board, whether that be the hypertension that's more prevalent in these black and brown communities or these low-income jobs that happen to be manual labor or essential. What do you think are the structural changes that now need to be fast-tracked in this COVID world?
1: In several different areas, access to healthy food, having a health care system that focuses on the project we have at Bellevue Hospital, where we're doing lifestyle medicine changing the food we're feeding our children in other health care facilities at the heart of coronavirus is pre-existing conditions we cannot lose sight of that and that is also all across the entire country that the pre-existing conditions is feeding the long-term sick issues is the use of ventilators hospitalization inability to really have an adequate recovery because we don't know what is the long-term impacts of coronavirus. It's more than just, okay, I no longer have a fever. I just read that there may be some long-term brain impact because of that, long-term lung impacts because of that. So we have to change how we move from sick care to a real health care that we focus on wellness. And if we don't do that, we're gonna to continue to deal with this battle. Coronavirus is not like that thousand year flood. You know, experts have told us that we have created a system where we have an all use of antibiotics that's going to create superbugs. We have a mass consumption of food with pigs and chickens, that viruses are being created. The studies have been here. We should not be surprised. We knew this was coming and It's going to continue to come if we don't change what we're doing.
0: What does legislation look like there in terms of increasing access to healthy foods and maybe even changing what the diet looks like in these communities that are disproportionately affected?
1: A very aggressive on the ground. I think about when I went to a food pantry over the Thanksgiving holiday, handing out food, and when I handed one of the participants a beak, They said they didn't want it because they did not know how to cook a beat and what you do with a beat. So Mm. we need to get back to the granular level. Our hospitals should have behavior scientists assigned there. We should have nutritionists. We should have those who are able to show people how to cook healthy food. We take for granted that someone knows how to saute kale or how to cut up and dice beets or how to cook bok choy. That's not a reality. We take for granted that people know the various spices and the power of spices. We have to go back, and part of our healthcare system must encompass all of the things that one needs to do and know. The city can't continue to feed the crisis that we are facing, and our educational system needs to be in alignment with the Department of Health. The Department of Health must be in alignment with our nutritionists. And our uh, health providers, our ACS, all of our agencies must focus on this holistic approach to health.
0: I know a bit about your personal story, too. Like, there's a reason you're so passionate about what a clean diet can do if these neighborhoods start adopting clean, healthy diets and it's made accessible to them. You were someone who would be someone that was at risk a few years ago. You you had a bunch of underlying conditions. Can you talk about a little bit what you were facing and then what you did to address it?
1: You know, and I look back, the other day I was sitting back and I was reflecting on where I was. And when I was told I was diabetic, at the advanced stages of diabetes, I lost my vision in my left eye. I was losing my vision in my right. I had permanent nerve damage in my hands and feet. I was going to lead to amputation. had high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high PSA, which is an indicator of early signs of enlarged prostate. Uh, I had an ulcer. And it's that body I had then was the same body i have now i would be in the category of potentially losing my life from a infection of coronavirus but because i sought out to take a different path and start to look at how food played a role on my health condition i was able to go to what is called a whole food plant-based diet i was able to go from losing my sight to a full recovery of my vision in three weeks. Uh, My nerve damage went away in three months. The ulcer disappeared. No drugs. My entire body went into a transformation, and I have consistently lived this way for the last three years, close to almost four years. And it was about just the food. And I think if more Brooklynites, New Yorkers, and Americans know that the things that they're doing is creating the harm to their body. Uh, I think they are change the direction, but we are unwilling to give them the truth. We've been hijacked uh, by the uh, meat and dairy industry and the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, they're going to now switch this conversation from giving you medicine to treat symptoms to now you're going to hear big conversations about people taking preventives vaccines to stop viruses. We look at this as a crisis. Other people look at it as currency.
0: Mm. New Yorkers right now are being asked to wear masks in public. Obviously, a lot of Black and brown folks in New York City have had a rocky relationship with the NYPD and are understandably hesitant or scared to wear a mask in public. What would you say to them?
1: I, I respect their fear. And oftentimes, when we hand down edicts or we hand down something that people should do, we do it through our own prism, our own set of eyes, our own understanding. We don't even realize the impact of what we do and say, how it impacts others. And so when the mayor, the president, the governor, the CDC say, hey, throw on a mask, uh, to many people they'll say, what's the big deal, throw on a mask? Mm-hmm. But if you lived in a society that any attempt to cover your face was determined to be that you were carrying out a nefarious act, you think twice before throwing on a mask, particularly if you are a young person. And so all I can say to them, I understand their fear, their intrepidations, but this is a time I want them to be healthy and I will encourage them to use their creativity in how to wear masks nowadays. It may mean having a picture of of themselves on the front of the mask to show their full face or saying what their name is. I don't know, but I know that young people are extremely creative, and they need to be able to answer the question of how do they stay safe and don't allow the anger of the past to get in the way of the health of their future.
0: Is there anything that you feel, as a person in leadership, you're getting briefed on a lot, that you just feel like the general public just doesn't fully understand or know at this moment that you wish was understood or at least appreciated more broadly?
1: I think the number one thing that I'm hoping people really understand is that this virus is real. People are dying. They're going to have a long term impact. And so we saw for a period of time that people were not respecting the social distancing rules. They were hanging out in parks. They were just taking this lightly. And we all have a level of invincibility among ourselves, particularly if we never went through a chronic or serious illness, we believe it's the next guy. No, this virus doesn't understand the next guy. It can spread at a pace that we have never imagined during our modern times. We saw stuff like this under other pandemics, but during modern times, we have never witnessed anything at the level of this virus, and I just want people to really understand that this is a very serious time for us and we must do all that's possible to ensure that we flatten the curve so that people can survive.
0: I've only been in New Yorker for the last three years, but I fell in love with the city. And like at its very best, it's this beautiful collision of people. There's gatherings, live events, group fitness classes, cafes. You're going everywhere on the subway together. Is that version of New York dead? And if not, how do we get back to it? That's a
1: great question. One thing for sure, we would not be the same hopefully we evolve to appreciate each other more we could come out of it in a very painful state or we could come out of it and say now i'm going to value every time i'm maybe to sit down across from you in a restaurant Uh, i'm no longer going to complain again about this crowded train because i can actually take it and be next to someone again So as we call on people to have social distancing, uh, we also need a desire for us to come closer together. So hopefully we may value uh, the joy of walking in the park together, uh, sharing a bench together. Uh, Maybe this call to be away from each other is going to give us a time to start to appreciate each other. So, you know, they say that absence makes the heart go fonder, I'm sure that some of us are absent from that relationship we have with everyday New Yorkers.
0: That's a beautiful sentiment. I hope that's true. Hey, man, I appreciate you jumping on. I'm so happy that you are healthy for this moment and that you're making the moves you're making. So thank you so much, brother. I love you. Take care. Be safe out there, okay?
1: Thank you. Give my love to your family and
0: your wife. Thank you. All right. Take care, brother. Bye. Thank you for joining me on What We Don't Know. If you liked what you heard, we post the full interviews on our Patreon, patreon.com slash WWDK. If you become a patron, you'll have access to those full interviews plus other exclusive content. 50% of the revenue that this podcast generates goes towards the initiatives and organizations of our guests. So you'll not only be supporting this podcast, but you'll also be supporting some amazing, amazing work you'd like to follow us on social we're at wwdkpod on twitter facebook and instagram on youtube you can find our channel if you search what we don't know podcast and if you go to our website wwdkpod.com you can sign up for our newsletter where we share all the latest content all right hope this finds you happy healthy and safe take care